title of this session is not very promising. It's esophageal cancer progress by mission institutions. So how many are here because of an interest in esophagus cancer? And how many are here because of an interest in research at in missions? Okay, so we need to talk about both, I guess. And I think that the audience, maybe not on the esophagus cancer side, but on the research side, the audience has more expertise than I do. So maybe we can try and be a bit interactive as we go. So this is what the overview of what I hope we'll talk about in this breakout session. Uh, I want to tell you the story of how mission institutions have played an important role in uh, progress against esophageal cancer. And that progress has come both with regard to treatment and to pathogenesis and prevention, and mainly in Eastern Africa. That's where I'm going to be talking about. Um, and then I want to talk about what does biomedical research look like in mission settings, and do missions and research go together, or is that a bad idea? So we're going to start with the esophageal cancer part. Can you guys see the slides okay? I'm sorry for the tiny text. But so these maps show the ins worldwide incidence of esophageal cancer. And there's two main kinds. There's adenocarcinoma and squamous cell carcinoma. And the map on the top shows adenocarcinoma, A panel here. Is my mouse showing? Yeah. And the panel on the B, uh, bottom, B, is the squamous cell cancer map. And you, can, you can't really read it from where you're sitting, but this shows essentially that the darker the color, the more cancer there is per 100,000 population. So if you look at this, I'm just going to, this is a little test for you now. So in the United States, which is more common, A, adenocarcinoma, or B, squamous cell carcinoma? Adenocarcinoma, yeah. The blue is darker here than it is here. You with me? Now, if you just look overall at the whole world, which kind is more common, adenocarcinoma or squamous cell carcinoma? Squamous cell. There's a lot more dark blue down here than up there. So right away it tells you that esophagus cancer in Africa and other high incidence areas is a different animal than what is most often seen in the United States, which is adenocarcinoma. And I want you to further notice on this map here of squamous cell carcinoma that uh, there's these areas of really dark blue. And those are areas of what would sometimes be called endemic squamous cell cancer of the esophagus. I'm assuming you all know that the esophagus is the tube that goes from the mouth to the stomach, but just if you didn't, now you do. So, um, uh, but these really dark blue areas uh, are, are fascinating because they're around the globe. There's this high incense region that stretches across central to eastern Asia from the, from the Caucasus Mountains through Lingshan Province, China. And they just, this map just takes a whole country and makes it one color. But actually, the area, there's a belt in China that's very high risk for esophageal squamous cell cancer and then other parts that are very low risk. And it's all about the same um, latitude here. And then there's this belt up and down East Africa, including the southern half of Ethiopia, where I live. And this is a very, another very high incidence area. And then Brazil, fascinatingly enough, is a very high incidence area. So you'd say, well, wow, what ties all those places together? Uh, and we'll actually get to that. Um, and you can see that in East Africa, which I'm going to focus on, there's hardly any adenocarcinoma. 
and in fact, it's, it's starting to change now, but for most of the last 30 years, the reports stress that, you know, it's over 90% of this one kind squamous cell cancer. And one of the unique things about the East Africa belt of squamous cell cancer is that about a quarter of the patients present at less than 40 years of age. So they're really young people with esophageal squamous cell cancer, which is a, a real distinctive. And so in this picture, uh, the patient with esophagus cancer is in the wheelchair. She's the youngest person in the picture. She's in her early 30s. And um, those, um, the guy right behind her works at the hospital. And uh, David Nyatech. And the three other people, two of them are her, the two in the middle are her parents, and the guy on the right is her uncle. So, so uh, she looks so sick and old because she's starving to death. Her, the tumors blocked her esophagus so she can't eat. And um, in, in many low-resource areas around the world, people with esophagus cancer, they starve to death or they aspirate to death. They can't swallow their secretions. They're trying to get a little liquid in. Their esophagus is blocked. They aspirate. And so it's a, a horrible disease. Um, over 20 years ago, I became interested in this problem and uh, went to visit this hospital where this picture was taken a long time ago. Um, I probably wouldn't take that picture these days, but um, I did take that picture then. And I was invited by a friend, a surgical colleague, Dr. Russ White, who was at this small mission hospital, Tenwick Hospital, and was doing surgery and taking out the esophagus of some patients with this cancer. Now that, as many of you know, is a major operation with a significant uh, risk associated with it. But uh, he was doing that and helping some patients, but 90% of the patients he saw just weren't candidates for the operation. Their tumor was too advanced. They were too debilitated and malnourished, and he really could do nothing for them. And the staff of the hospital hated seeing patients like this because they were miserable, they were suffering, and they did nothing for them. So uh, Russ said, gee, can you help us just do something to take care of these, help take care of these patients who can't be operated on for potential cure? In the United States at that time, and certainly today, you might give radiation therapy, chemotherapy, and those things simply weren't available at that time, and still in much of East Africa are, the, are, are limited, available only in a very limited uh, fashion for, for a small minority of patients. So uh, God provided and uh, provided a bunch of esophageal stents, which were this new high-tech thing that you could put a tube in there and it would expand in place and prop open the esophagus and relieve the major symptoms the person had. Certainly not cure or even treat their cancer directly, but at least palliate their symptoms. And so um, it was a brand new technology. It was very expensive, but God provided a bunch of stents. And so when I went there uh, to start working with Russ and David uh, Nyetech and David Rono, um, there was this sign that said endoscopy research room. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. We're doing research. I thought this was a mission hospital. And, uh, uh, but you can see that they were quite serious about that. And what they meant by research at that time was to collect information. So they kept a log book and they were writing down the details about every case 
where they did an endoscopy and diagnosed this cancer and where we started to treat this cancer. So um, the research was really based in just collecting some immediately available information. There was no research intervention of any sort. It was just let's, let's find what we can find out by writing things down. And that's how a lot of research initiatives get started. So we, we, we figured out that, you know, you were supposed to put these stents in with a C-arm, a fluoroscopy machine, to guide what you were doing. The C-arm machine had broken at Tenwick Hospital, and there was really no possibility of x-ray. So we said, well, how can we do this, put these stents in? And so we figured out a way, and we started putting in the stents without fluoroscopy, and it really worked. And so we wrote a small paper about it. And this was the first... Now, I usually don't show pictures from papers, and I want to apologize to you about that, but the reason I'm doing it is I want you to, to show you the author list on these papers, So, because some of you are interested in research. And um, I want to show you that there's three authors, and the me middle one is Caesar Mungatana. So there's a Kenyan colleague who's an author of this paper. And for those of you who do research and write papers, I want to say that's very important. There's um, something we can talk about more later if some of you have an interest in that. So we wrote this tiny little description about how to do this without fluoroscopy. And 10 years later, we wrote what remains the world's largest series of esophageal stent placements for as sole treatment for esophageal cancer. And at that time, by then, it was up to 1,000 stents placed in 951 patients. And you'll see the author list again. You probably can barely see it. But uh, Zachariah Kasapoy is there, a Kenyan author. Okay, although he is fourth in the author list out of five. But, um, we, but it was very important to us that we were collaborating with Kenyan colleagues. And we were able to show that... Um, in a large cohort of people with severe malnutrition and sort of the end stages of this cancer who got stents, that they lived a median of 250 days and they were comfortable when they died. They were still able to swallow um, and to nourish themselves. So uh, we certainly weren't curing anybody with a stent, but we thought we were helping. And that we went on to study a number of things about the use of stents for this disease. Tenwick Hospital is one of the only places in the world with a high enough volume of these patients to do things like a randomized trial of different stent diameters. And so we did that. And we described how you could put stents in the very proximal esophagus, almost coming up into the mouth, and which is not tolerable for a patient. And we described how to do that and how to modify the stent so that you, that would work. And we, we, so we went on about palliation, and we learned a lot about this particular form of palliation. And from early on, too, we wondered, well, what's actually causing all this cancer in East Africa, especially in these young people? And an obvious thing seemed to be, well, could this be a human papillomavirus-related cancer? Because we know cervical cancer, which is a squamous cell cancer, is HPV-related. And um, we sort of thought that was a dead end. And um, Along that time, we, start, we started an esophageal cancer research fellowship at the hospital, which was really a key thing in developing a research program. 
And our first esophageal cancer research fellow was the guy in the white fleece there named Mike Machiro. And Mike came um, straight after his internship. And his real goal was to become a general surgeon. But um, he thought, well, I'll start at Tenwa Hospital doing this two-year esophageal cancer research fellowship, and then they'll take me as a surgical resident, which is what actually turned out to do to happen. And Mike um, did a significant prospective research study. So I'm kind of been jumping ahead, but we went from writing down information about a first few patients and then 1,000 patients, and now it's 5,000 patients, I think, getting palliation in it with a particular form of palliation to, to um, saying, well, let's design a prospective study and figure some stuff out about this cancer that we couldn't figure out otherwise. Some of that involves collecting specimens, like the biopsies we took to check for human papillomavirus. But Mike's project was something a little different. And he wanted to know about the precursor lesion in the esophagus for this cancer. Now, the thing on the left, this is, these are endoscopic views down the barrel of the esophagus. And the picture on the left is what's called Barrett's esophagus, which is the precursor lesion to adenocarcinoma of the esophagus, what we have here in North America predominantly. This is where the esophagus joins the stomach down in here, the gastroesophageal junction. And the gastric, mu oops, sorry, the gastric mucosa is pink. It's a glandular mucosa, but the esophageal mucosa has a more whitish color. It's squamous uh, cell, it's a squamous uh, epithelium. And the white squamous epithelium should come all the way to here where the esophagus joins the stomach. But in Barrett's esophagus, you have a simplified glandular mucosa that comes up into the distal esophagus in tongues or circumferentially. And this specialized Barrett's mucosa is a pre-malignant condition. It can progress to dysplasia and then to cancer. So it turns out in squamous cell cancer of the esophagus, you've got a similar sort of thing going on called squamous dysplasia. And we have a pathologist here who could tell me, us more about it than I could, but, but um, maybe he'll comment later. But here's some endoscopic views of what looks like reasonably normal esophaguses, two different ones. And um, unlike Barrett's esophagus, you can't see squamous dysplasia through an endoscope unless you get fancy. So if you spray some Lugol's iodine in the esophagus, the unstained or lightly staining area uh, may be dysplasia or uh, this squamous dysplasia condition, which is a precursor to squamous cell cancer. And so these pictures show this is actually in panel A, this esophagus after you spray uh, uh, Lugol's iodine, this is the, the exact same esophagus. And now you see there's, oh, there's this area here, rather large area of dysplasia but you wouldn't, couldn't really see it just with white light. And similarly here and here. Um, so this is sort of a key uh, finding. So what Mike did is he um, won a grant from an American organization to do a prospective study to find out how common is this in Kenya, in that area of Kenya, squamous dysplasia. And he... It was a small grant by American standards. It was $20,000, but it was plenty for what Mike had in mind. And he went out into the region. He wanted to get healthy adult volunteers to figure this out. He wanted it to be population-based. 
He wasn't looking for patients who were coming to the hospital with some complaint. And so he went to the, he knew what to do, and none of the rest of us really did. He went to the village elders in each of the communities within 50 miles of Tenwick Hospital, and he sat with the village elders. And they talked about esophagus cancer. And um, the elders all knew people who had died of this problem. It's very common there. And they don't exactly know the pathophysiology and the anatomy and all, but they know people suddenly can't eat and they waste away and they have a rather miserable death. And so Mike said, you know, we want to recruit some normal people from your your village with no problems whatsoever health-wise, and we're going to bring a bus and bring them all to Tenwick Hospital and endoscope them all and figure out if they have this pre-malignant condition, which causes no symptoms. And all the elders agreed. And then they had a second meeting with, in each village, just with the, uh, in the, in the central square of the village, and they invited the whole town. Anyone who wants to participate above a certain age can sign up, and people signed up. So this is what microscopically uh, squamous dysplasia looks like. This is the, the normal uh, stratified squamous epithelium of the esophagus. And dysplasia, the cells here at the bottom start to look, have really large nuclei and look somewhat disordered. And this is mild dysplasia. Moderate dysplasia, these abnormal cells come up halfway. And severe dysplasia, they're almost all the way to the surface of the mucosa, the luminal surface. And the numbers underneath, this is from a prior study in China, the relative risk for getting esophageal squamous cell cancer if you have mild dysplasia over the subsequent decade or so, your risk is increased threefold. If you have moderate, it's tenfold. And if you have severe dysplasia, it's 30-fold compared to uh, um, someone without this condition. So uh, we were especially interested in these people with moderate or severe dysplasia. And so Mike did this study, and he published the results. And now you can see the author list is getting longer because there's a bunch of collaborators And at this point, there were collaborators from the National Cancer Institute in Bethesda, Maryland, who were helping us uh, both with over-reading of the pathology, which I understand can be subtle, interpreting squamous dysplasia of the esophagus. And we had collaborators not only at Tenwick Hospital, but at, um, oops, but at uh, uh, the University of Nairobi, which is the, the big medical school in Kenya, in Nairobi, that runs Kenyatta Hospital there. So we had collaborators there in the pathology department. And this was all very intentional to, to sort of work collaboratively with people in the community and the country. And Mike found that about 14% of adults living in southwestern Kenya had squamous dysplasia in their esophagus. They didn't know it. They were just walking around with it. And he found that 3% had advanced dysplasia, so the really you know, severe dysplasia that uh, markedly increases their risk of having cancer. And uh, to us, this was a very important finding because we felt like we were starting to get a handle on what was happening in this population. And we also thought, ah, so maybe this is a pathway to prevention. So cancer prevention can be, takes a couple of forms. One way to prevent cancer is to take a public health point of view and address the risk factors that lead to the cancer. 
So if, for instance, not so much in Kenya now, but if smoking is a risk factor for cancer, let's try and get people to stop smoking, right? And that's a uh, beautiful and highly effective thing. We didn't really know yet what the risk factors were for this cancer, uh, and I'm going to get to that. But then the other way to prevent cancer is to look for the precursor lesion and to try and treat it and remove it before it can turn into cancer. So you've heard of colonoscopy to remove colon polyps. Uh, that's the, the same idea. Pap smears, looking for the precursor squamous cell lesion for cervical cancer. Mammograms, a little different, but looking for very early cancers in, uh, in that case. So, so two different strategies. And when we, when we had this result, we said to ourselves, well, maybe we can just do mass screening for the precursor lesion. And in fact, if it had been the United States, that's what would happen. If we all, if 3% of us all had severe dysplasia in our esophagus, we'd all be going for a, once in a while an endoscopy to see if we had that. And if so, it's pretty easy to treat this problem through an endoscope as an outpatient and get rid of it. So, so the problem is this is East Africa. It's not the United States. And there aren't enough endoscopes in East Africa to think about doing that for all the adults in Kenya and Tanzania and Malawi and Zambia and Ethiopia. And, I mean, there's not even 1% of all the endoscopes you would need or the doctors who know how to use the endoscope or the pathologists who know how to read the biopsies. So that seems like a non-starter. So, so we were puzzling over what to do about that. So Mike's study and other studies from the region also started to get the question of what are the population risk factors for this cancer? And in the United States, the big risk factors for squamous cell of the esophagus are smoking and alcohol. And these things, statistically, in many studies from East Africa, they do pan out to have a significant p-value, but as a risk factor between when you look at cases versus controls. I don't know if you can read that. I'm sorry for how small it is. But even though some of these things are statistically significant in a large group of patients, they're not very impressive, like smoking. Only 27% of the cases smoked versus 13% of the controls. So, okay, smoking is probably a risk factor there, but it's not the main thing causing this cancer if only 27% had it. The thing that really stood out was taking hot beverages. And 87% of the cases and 35% of the controls took hot beverages. Now, this was something I was always rather skeptical about, this thing of taking hot beverages. And there were studies from China showing that taking hot beverages was a risk factor for this cancer. But it just sounded too simplistic to me. I mean, okay, right, yours, I get it, the hot liquid goes in the esophagus. But um, it just didn't, uh, it wasn't compelling to me. But w here's this sort of information. And so we did a study about that to look at, well, what temperature do people actually drink their tea at in Kenya? How many people here have worked in Kenya? Or, well, or close by, close enough, higher. And um, I can tell you people drink their tea really hot in Kenya. And um, so hot, in fact, that I'm, if you haven't figured it out yet, I'm a gastroenterologist, that um, we see people there who have uh, benign strictures of their esophagus from the thermal injury that's caused inflammation and scarring and stricturing of their esophagus just from drinking boiling hot beverages. I mean, it's incredible. So, so um, 
Mike and the team did another prospective study. So doing these sorts of prospective studies, it's a leap for an institution, right? They're going from just writing stuff down in a logbook or in a computer to, whoa, we've got to get permission to do research. We've got to find some little money. Mike, by the way, did that study. He recruited, all, he recruited 300 healthy adults. He fed them all lunch, gave them transportation, and did all the endoscopies on them and all the data analysis for $20,000. So in the United States, you could, you know, barely turn on your computer for $20,000. So, so, um, but he, but um, you have to find some resources and you have to get your hospital and your team to say, yeah, we think it's okay to do this kind of work. And we're going to get back to that at the end. But so Mike did a study looking at, well, what temperature do people drink their tea at in Kenya? And now this is really getting into the weeds. And if you had, you know, if you had just a passing interest in esophagus cancer, you would never have the energy, time, and desire to do this study. But to us, it had become important. And this is a, um, also a way that clinical research works. You start to dig down into something, and you dig a little deeper, and you dig a little deeper, and you start to ask increasingly arcane questions and small questions in the hope that the answers will add up to something cohesive. So, so he did a study, and we found the average temperature that people in southwest Kenya drink their tea at is 72 degrees centigrade. Now, that may not sound very hot, but it's really hot. And um, the International Association for, the study, for, the, for Research on Cancer, IARC, has reviewed the worldwide literature on hot beverages and says that drinking temper, uh, temperatures at or above 65 degrees centigrade is likely carcinogenic, which is a surprisingly strong statement. Um, but there's a lot of literature on this. And the interesting thing here is that China, Brazil, Tanzania, and Mike's study, Kenya, the average temperature is all over 65 degrees. Germany, U.S., Iran, and United Kingdom are lower. And with the exception of Iran, these are places with relatively little squamous cell cancer of the esophagus. So Mike's actually, Mike is very proud of the fact that his column here is the tallest one and that it's worse in Kenya than anywhere else. Um, so, um, well, that's really interesting to us because, you know, I said there's two paths to trying to prevent this cancer. And, well, here right now is it, there's an, at least an association that maybe we could get people to drink their tea less hot and maybe that would alter the equation in this area. And um, so when Mike did his study with endoscoping all those people, those healthy, normal volunteers, our friends at the National Cancer Institute were wise enough to say, why don't you collect some biospecimens from those people while you're at it? And why don't you collect some blood and some saliva and some urine and just put it in a minus 80 freezer? And we said, what minus 80 freezer? <laughs> And they said, no problem, we'll help you get a minus 80 freezer. So now in the endoscopy room, for years now at Tenwick, there's this huge minus 80 freezer percolating along in the background as you're working in this, in this room. And so we collected those things in these patients, and that turned out to be a fantastic thing. And what we used the urine specimens for was to measure some substances called polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. So 
or PAHs. PAHs are the carcinogens found in tobacco smoke. In fact, they're found in smoke in general, all kinds of smoke. And um, we, we thought, well, maybe, you know, there was some suggestion, I'll, I'll back up here, there was some suggestion that if you were the person who did the cooking in the family, your risk of esophagus cancer was higher. Typically, the, the mother or the women in the family would do the cooking in this area. So, so we thought, let's see about what the polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbon levels are. So all the urine from those 300 people got tested uh, for PAH levels. And there's multiple different, it's a, it's a family of, of compounds. So across the bottom here, you've got seven different molecules that all belong to the PAH family. And the red bars are the urine specimens from Mike's study. And the gray bars are from a similar study done in a high incidence area in Iran. And then these are from the yellow and the orange bars. Orange bars are the US, the yellow bars is another low risk area. I don't actually remember where MATCH is from. From southern Brazil. Okay, so it actually is not entirely low risk. But, um, well you can see the result. Mike's specimens, the lab had never seen pH, le pH levels as high as we found in Mike's specimens. So it was like, whoa, they've got like maybe 10 times the level of this carcinogen found in smoke. And the idea is that carcinogen gets into your body somehow. We didn't know yet really how it got into your, these people's bodies, but it comes out in the urine. So these urine assays are a reasonable surrogate for exposure over the prior five days or so. So I thought, wow, these people are full of this carcinogen found in smoke. And we further showed that the levels were highest in that 3% who had advanced dysplasia. They had higher levels than everybody else who still had significantly high levels. So we thought, wow, this, this could be part of the story. But where, where were they getting all this pH into their body? A similar study had been done in, that, in Brazil and in Brazil, they drink a tea called mate. Anyone here a mate drinker? Yeah, yeah. Well, you're not going to like what I'm about to tell you. So, so mate is a heavily smoked tea. And if you make a cup of mate uh, in Brazil, you can send that off to the lab at NCI that does these assays. That study's been done. And the mate has a lot of pH in it. So we thought, aha, Kenya, lots of tea. Uh, we bet it's the tea. So, um, you know, somebody went to the supermarket in Nairobi and bought all the brands of tea and shipped the boxes to the NCI and they brewed up some cups of tea and there was zero PAH in Kenyan tea. So where were these people getting all this carcinogen? Well, it was clear from Mike's study that the levels were higher in women and there was a link to cooking and, you know, um, female sex, cooking indoors, no primary education, younger people, and as I've said, it was linked with advanced dysplasia. So Mike said, well, I know what this is because I know this culture, and let's just go look at how the women cook. And it turns out the cooking is usually done in a separate building from where the family sleeps, and it's usually a very small shed, and when you go in, the walls and the ceiling are black, because of the smoke, and there's a fire there burning generally wood or, or, um, or, or dung, 
and there's no ventilation. The room is just thick with smoke. And generally, it's the women who just spent hours in this room cooking. So um, we thought, aha, it's the, it's the cooking situation. So this to us is really exciting because we've got hot beverages and we've got exposure to PAH. And we still don't exactly know about the smoke. Are they swallowing the smoke? Is that why it's affecting the esophagus more than, for instance, the lung? There's not much lung cancer in this area of, of, of um, Kenya. But um, could these things come together and become a set of public health interventions to try and decrease the risk of cancer in this area? So notice you've got a bunch of mission doctors who are there because they want to show Christ's love to people. And they've started out, that's motivated them to improve the palliation of people with advanced cancer so that they can just live comfortably and die with some dignity. And now things have kind of gone along and they're at the point where they're thinking, maybe we could prevent this cancer. Well, how great would that be? and not all, all of you might not agree from the mission's point of view that that would be great. We could talk about that maybe a little later. But, but um, the team was very excited about that. And certainly the Kenyans on the team were very excited about that idea. So um, a question that comes up is why write about all these things? One of the benefits for the Kenyans on the team, and now I think we're on our sixth esophageal cancer research fellow at Tenwick Hospital, although, uh, and they do it for two years at a time. That first guy, Mike, is now the head of endoscopy and of research at Tenwick Hospital. Um, Mike is on the Kenyan, the, the government of Kenya said, we have a problem with esophagus cancer, we need some screening guidelines, and Mike wrote these. I mean, Mike is the go-to person in Kenya around this issue. And... But but trying to get to prevention, we said, now this is probably 12 years ago or so, we said, let's go out and screen the population for squamous dysplasia with a low-tech method. So the low-tech method we used is called the Brazilian balloon. It's this thing that looks like a NG tube, a little stiffer, and it's got a, a deflatable rib balloon on the end. And you, the person swallows it, you're holding one end, and you blow up the balloon, and you pull it out, and the ribs on the balloon exfoliate cells from the esophagus. It's kind of like doing a pap smear of the esophagus, because then you take that balloon and you smear it on slides, and um, so this picture shows a bunch of people in a certain village gathering at a church or a school. Here's uh, uh, one of the nurses from Tenwick doing this to a well person who's in this study in the village. And then the slides are pap stained done on them right at Tenwick and follow-up plan for those who had an abnormality. But we found less than 1% was it abnormal. It was like, well, this just isn't good enough. I mean, we're not picking up. We said 14% have dysplasia. This is just not picking it up. So we felt kind of stymied about that. But our research team continued to grow. And um, we found that there were a lot of people in the U.S., working on various aspects of cancer prevention and detection who were very interested in getting involved with this. And so some colleagues of mine um, who were working on cancer prevention across Oregon said, hey, we think 
We've developed a fancy stool test to look for methylated DNA in the stool. We think maybe we could do something for you with this esophagus squamous cell cancer problem. And so um, we looked at methylated DNA markers of esophageal squamous cancer and dysplasia. And you can, if you're used to area under the receiver operating curve um, diagrams, these markers do really well. I mean, they pick up over 90% of cancer and dysplasia from different sites around the world. And so we thought, wow, so maybe instead of just doing a pap smear on something we get out of the esophagus, we could look for these DNA molecules in what we get out of the esophagus. And maybe that will be good enough as a screening test that we could, um, that we could start to screen hundreds of thousands of people in East Africa every year, really millions of people a year, uh, without an endoscope. Um, and, or an endoscopist. And the device is, that we're planning to use is this thing. It's called a cytosponge. So the, on the right is a capsule, gelatin capsule, with this sponge compressed in it on a string. And you swallow the capsule, and the string is hanging out your mouth. And after a couple of minutes, the gelatin dissolves in your stomach, and that little ball of, of sponge pops out in the stomach. And you pull the string, and the thing comes out. And you get, I think it's about a million cells on that thing. And the idea is then to extract the DNA and see if these methylated DNA markers are in the material. And that's where we're at with this project. We've, we've just done the pilot study with 70 or so volunteers at Tenwick uh, without symptoms of cancer. And um, we're looking at quantity of DNA and so forth. And it's going to take a much, much, much larger study uh, with a gold standard to see is this good enough for screening. But if it is, it's really exciting to us because this could be done, this is low tech and cheap and could be done to screen lots and lots of people. This could be scaled up um, uh, in a way that endoscopy really can't. Now, along the way in this research project, and, and it's more than project but program, um, it's really all about the people. And this is the endoscopy team at Tenwick Hospital uh, a few years ago. Many of these folks have been doing this for years. A couple of them are research people. So they just spend the day enrolling people in studies, following up with people who are in studies, entering data into a spreadsheet, uploading the data, processing biospecimens and putting them in that big freezer. And so there's some funding, grant funding, creative ways of funding with people who are collaborators paying for the biospecimens so they can do the assays so they can report more information. So, um, but Kenyans are an integral part of this. The picture on the left is from 2010 which that was uh, uh, during a visit. Uh, the team that was working on the cancer issue there, esophagus cancer research. The picture on the right is the surgical residence at that hospital probably about eight years ago. And many of those residents have been involved in this research in some way or another. The picture on the lower right is a clinical officer from the hospital. And you're saying, well, I didn't know it snowed in Kenya. but. Um, uh, clinical officer, the hospital got to the point where they said, we badly need a cytopathology technician. We can't really hope to get a true pathologist, 
But if we can get a technician who could prep the slides and um, read them, at least preliminarily read them for us, that would be great. So uh, Bernard Martin came and lived for a year in Rochester, Minnesota, and took did a year-long cytotech course at our institution, where John and Steve are from. And, you know, he got there in August, and August is just beautiful in Minnesota. And the, 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 the day he got there, he emailed his friends in Kenya, please pray for me, it is desperately cold here. <laughs> but, but by the middle of February, he was actually out there before sunrise, snow blowing the driveway. So, um, uh, so a lot of this project, I've given you some science and some what we've learned, but it's really been mainly about people and getting people involved who are interested, finding a niche that fits them, employing some people. Employment is a big deal and a great thing. And um, also introducing a culture of research. Medical hospitals in general and medical systems can be very hierarchical, especially, I would say, in a more traditional culture. Maybe not so much in the United States, although even in the United States, you know, the, I'll pick on the surgeons because there's only one here, I think. So the surgeon's in charge, right? What the surgeon says goes. And then there's the, everyone else underneath is, is you know, clearly underneath on the org chart. Research is not like that. Research is a completely different beast. And research is a team. And the, if the person who's enrolling the patient and collecting the data and processing the biospecimens is every bit as important, probably more important, than the surgeon who walks in and does the endoscopy and walks out. And um, the whole team also has, you know, in clinical care, you're, in a way, you're doing the patient a favor. I mean, you're not doing them a favor. You're there to care for them. But they're coming to you with a need. Huh? In research, it's flipped. You are going to the patient with a need. Would you consider being in our research study? It's not going to help you, but it might help us figure this out for the larger community. So, so research is hierarchically very flat. If it's going to work, it has to be flat for the team. And the approach to the patient is different. Um, you know, and you have to be prepared to spend as long as it takes and to go the extra mile for that person because they're doing you a favor by being in your project. So all these sorts of things have happened there. That sort of culture has crept into the mission hospital, and um, it's a beautiful thing, actually. Now, um, about, what is it now, three or four years ago, um, missionaries at Tenwick Hospital were instrumental in starting the African Esophageal Cancer Consortium. And this organization was started to help with funding, to help with research, and it, anyone can join who's interested in this problem in Eastern Africa. And so there's a lot of people involved from many orga- uh, institutions and organizations, including all the organizations listed on that slide, plus a couple of others now. Like on that slide, which is old, there's no one in, in Ethiopia, but there certainly is now, and, um, and a couple of other sites. And... 
as well as multiple medical research institutions in Europe and the United States. And um, so this has moved well beyond the mission hospital. And I don't want to give you ever the idea it was only ever in the mission hospital. Other people working on this. But the mission hospital is partnering now with many institutions, national institutions, public institutions in Kenya, and international institutions. And especially one of the big initiatives of this organization is to pay, go back to palliation. So many patients up and down East Africa have no, still no access to palliation. That's true in the country I live in, Ethiopia. We're on the verge of introducing effective, scalable palliation there, uh, although a civil war may interfere. So, um, but, so um, the team at Tenwick and I were very involved in starting a stent access initiative. How could we get stents that aren't just um, brought in someone's suitcase, which we rapidly outstripped at Tenwick, or even just for one hospital, but for a whole region? And so we went through a complex process, which I'm not going to actually go through this slide with you, but you can see there were multiple steps we took from identifying barriers, et cetera, et cetera, establishing processes. And this is what our STEM program looks like. We did a worldwide competitive bidding process with stent manufacturers all over the world. And I expected an Asian stent manufacturer to win because we were looking for the cheapest stent that was FDA and um, um, CE mark approved. And, and uh, I expected an Asian manufacturer to win. They're the low cost manufacturers. But those initial stents I took to Tenwick Hospital over 20 years ago were donated by Boston Scientific Corporation. And ever since then, Dr. White and the team would be sending pictures back to Boston Scientific. Um, we just want you to know what we did with those stents, how you helped these people. And some of those pictures got blown up big and put in the hallways of the executive suite of, of this large uh, um, uh, medical equipment manufacturer. And so when we did, 20 years on, this worldwide competitive bid, say, we want you to commit to providing stents for all of East Africa, Boston Scientific came in with the low bid. So, so they are our, our, our um, industry partner. And then in each country, we have um, a lead hospital that champions this project of getting palliation into the country. And each of these countries is very different. Some countries, you can bring whatever you want in, and it's very easy. The country I live in, it's almost impossible to bring anything in. And the process takes several years. It's highly cumbersome and expensive to try and get anything approved for import. So um, that process is worked through in various countries. Then we have our champion institution in each country that not only where we've trained the endoscopists to put stents in, but where they've committed to training others from their country to do it. And um, so that's these other littler places here so that this palliation can be available. And the picture at the top here is Mike Machiro again, now going, in, going around. I think that patient was taken at, picture was taken at Muhumbili Hospital in Dar es Salaam, but going around and training endoscopists around East Africa how to put these stents in. And um, you could ask, is this missions, you know, doing this? It's a fair question. Um, 
I think it is. So that gets me to this question in the time we have left. Do missions and research go together? Are they like oil and water? You know, the two just do not mix, at least not in any permanent fashion. Thank you. And Or are they like peanut butter and jelly? And um, there's you can think about this in either way. And on the not mixed side, you could say, well, the research hospital is about faith. I mean, the, I'm sorry, the mission hospital is about faith. It's about bringing people to Jesus, and that should be our focus. It shouldn't be on research and science. Um, and I, you need to take these seriously. Then there's the horror stories of the past where research has been used, people have been poorly treated and unethically treated in the name of research. And we certainly don't want that stain on our mission hospital. And what about the perception of the community and the staff? Because even if we're actually doing things right, if the perception is that we're experimenting on people, that torpedoes our ministry here, which is to bring people to Jesus, not to to uh, advance biomedical science. And will our mission, will there be mission creep? Will we become all about research and not all about Jesus? On the other side of the story is improved patient care. So the story I've told you of a research program grew from the needs of patients, an unmet need of patients. And most mission hospitals can, I easily identify a number of common clinical situations where there's a need for progress, an urgent need for progress. And sometimes that doesn't involve research. Sometimes it involves we need a proper x-ray machine or we need a proper laboratory machine or whatever it is. But other times it does involve some research. And improving patient care at the hospital is a good thing because uh, we're it's, we're showing Jesus' love to people by improving the care we can give to them, relieving their symptoms and restoring their dignity and drawing out the image of God in them. You know, giving that image of God a chance to reemerge, creativity, uh, their will, their executive function, um, their, their, even their ability uh, of their spirit to interact with God. I mean, by, by treating disease effectively, we restore some of those things which are the precursors to someone being able to meet Jesus. Um, and then making progress against disease is, in this view, is part of God's common grace, his gift to, to the world. All, all truth is God's truth. All medical knowledge and skill and tech abilities we have are gifts of God to people. So that when we take antibiotic pills and it cures our infection, we can thank God for healing us with the antibiotic he provided and that he uh, gave scientists and others the, the ability, skill, and insight to discover. So, so um, progress against disease is, is a kingdom thing in my mind. It's not an accident that in Matthew chapter 4, uh, when Jesus preaches the gospel of the kingdom, a prominent element of that was healing people. And I think that's still the case today. And I think mission hospitals like Tenwick Hospital and others are outposts of God's kingdom. So that healing, um, uh, progress against disease, to me, is a part of mission. Perceptions of the community and staff are on both sides of this slide. But in, in I can tell you in Kenya, 
there's been this has been this pro program has been hugely positive in terms of perceptions of both this hospital staff and the community because the community sees this hospital trying to do something about this problem that's killing people and um, the staff has experienced a different way of working which I described earlier so it's been positive and um, these, I th my view is more on the right side of this slide that research done right demonstrates the gospel. And I think this is my last slide, but in a faith-based context, I think research should aim to make progress against disease, especially a disease that's common where the research, where the hospital is or the clinic is, and, and that is not satisfactorily treated already. So it should start with the needs of people. And then it should demonstrate love, grace, and mercy in action. And if you can't do it in a gracious way, in a loving way, in a way that um, enhances the dignity and value of everyone involved, you probably shouldn't be doing it. Um, emphasizing the worth of individuals, demonstrating commitment to the community, and bringing a taste of God's kingdom to everybody who's involved. So uh, with that, I'm going to stop, and I think we only have a few questions uh, a few minutes, but I'd love to hear your comments and experiences. Thank you. Steve. Thank you. That was really important. It, it, it was like the old radio lab or something, just this medical detective story that, that told us. Could you pass that back to him? Uh, one of the things I was uh, waiting to hear and, and saw sort of come out implicitly in your talk is is the benefits to the Mission Hospital as an organization, and that, that was woven through all of this. seems to me there's a long list of those that probably is worth a paper in itself hmm. about how research done at a Mission Hospital uh, can further the work of the kingdom. Uh, but uh, as you've made that list, you've probably decided what to prioritize. seems seems there's a lot, lot more elements on there. My second question is how do you treat early identified severe dysplasia. <laughs> so great comment, Steve, and I agree with what you said. There are great benefits for the hospital, although there's also growing pains for the hospital and figuring out administratively how to cope with a research budget and so forth, but I agree. Um, what you do is, there's a couple of approaches, but one approach is to turn the squamous dysplasia into a polyp, it's flat, but if you inject fluid under it, it becomes polypoid and you just snare it off, essentially. And the other way is to put a, a balloon that has radiofrequency ablation built in it and you inflate it against the wall and apply radiofrequency ablation and burn it off. So, um, but these are outpatient interventions that are fairly simple. You pass the microphone forward. Thank you. Um, my father died of this disease in 1984. Mm -hmm. I left the U.S. when I got a call that my dad was passing. And uh, exactly what you explained, nothing went in. Nothing. So he died of starvation. But what I have been told through the years since 1984, what I was expecting from you, you did not, uh, did not come up, is I come from the area. Uh, that part, western part of Kenya, Kisumu, if you can see where Kisumu is. Yes, I know Kisumu. Down along the lake. There's a lot of this along Kisumu. Yes. 
So what we have, what I was told was because uh, we eat a lot of tilapia. And that tilapia, during the rainy season, they smoke it and they use euphorbia tree. I don't know whether you're familiar with the euphorbia. I'm not. Yeah, it's very local, very common where you are over there. So they use this to dry fish and the euphorbia tree is poisonous because it has melt. And they say that's what is killing all these people in my area. I don't know whether you've heard of that. Well, that's fascinating. So I have to find out about the euphobia tree. Thank yeah. you for that. Maybe afterwards you can write it down for me. Sure. I, I never explained how the hot beverages and the smoke go together. But sort of the, the working hypothesis is that the extremely hot beverages create a low-grade thermal injury to the lining of the esophagus, which usually is impermeable but becomes somewhat porous. And then the carcinogen coming in penetrates because of the thermal injuries. Now, that's a working hypothesis, but it could well be that smoked fish together with extremely hot tea, you know, would fit into that kind of uh, story. Boil milk and boil the water. Otherwise, it's no tea, right? Yes, and lots of sugar. It's it's half usually half water and half full cream milk, huh? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes, there's a question over this way. So to be able to do something like this. To be able to do something like, like this. So that's a great question. And it takes us back to the history of Tenwick Hospital where this work was, much of this work was done that I showed you. Tenwick Hospital was started, I want to say, in the 1940s by a missionary nurse who started a dispensary and just faithfully took care of person, people. Then a doctor, Dr. Ernie Sturry, came there and spent over 20, I don't know how long Dr. Sturry was there, maybe 30 or more years, as the only doctor taking care of people in that community. And he started a community health program and hired nurses, Kenyan nurses, who would go out into the local communities to do prenatal care, antenatal care, um, well-child care, height and weight charts for children, vaccinations, and so there's a long history, over 50 years in this region of Kenya, of this hospital doing good for the community. And I'm glad you asked, because without that, this could never have happened, this particular line of research. Um, it's all built on that heritage, and the team is very careful to guard that heritage. So if there's an idea, maybe we should do X project or Y project, if it's not going to fly with the community, it's a non-starter. Yeah. Eric. John. Well, I'm going to do a shout-out for Max and really for Michael. Really, Michael's a team along with Liz and their two daughters. Um, but uh, Michael has applied for and been approved by Pax to start a surgical therapeutic endoscopy fellowship 
for people who have finished not only their surgical training, but if they're internist and gastroenterologist, they want to be a part of that. And that's slated to take off in January. So uh, there is an interest here. There is a need here. Uh, and I think that uh, they have done, I mean, you go from Sturry to White. He's been there, what, for 25 or so years in continuity. And he goes back to Brown. Uh, and he's got support. Uh, there's a poem called Outwitted that uh, I could read to you. I carry it with me, and it's very important. But we, we quote, serious Christians are not the only people that can make contributions. Yes. Uh, the president of my medical school class, who is a Jewish individual, has spent his life going to China, uh, going to various parts of Africa, and he, along with Mark, have taken, really, uh, Michael and encouraged him and catalyzed him and equipped him uh, and I think that there are a lot, you talk about a team, we need to maybe broaden our circle to take other people in and not say, well, we're the only ones and have strict requirements about who can come and help us take care of these people in sub-Saharan Africa. That is so true. And part of the idea of common grace, and if you want to know the biblical basis for that, I'd be happy to talk to you afterwards because it's strong. But part of the idea of common grace is God gifts individuals regardless of whether they come to him or not. They're born with gifts. They develop gifts and talents. And what John said is absolutely true. And being able to work with many people who aren't Christians or have a distant memory of Christianity somewhere in their life, it's just a beautiful thing, and it's a blessing to them. Uh, and we are blessed by them because they've moved parts of this forward that we never could have done by ourselves. It's a great comment. Eric. It seemed to me, this is fascinating to hear kind of how the story has developed, and my impression was that there were a lot more uh, people with higher rates of esophageal cancer in the, in the Kipsky's tribal group that surrounded Temek. But what you're suggesting is that, I mean, have, 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 has that been looked at from a genetic standpoint, uh, or was that just selection bias because that's for most of the patients in Temek? Yeah, we still don't have great statistics about cancer incidence because there's no national cancer registries in any of these places. So they're all estimates pieced together from partial registries based at certain hospitals. But, but it's clear it's more than Kipsigis. At least half the patients who come to Tenwick for stenting of their advanced cancer are not Kipsigis. And I started off with a map of esophageal cancer in East Africa, and it's clearly not just Kipsigis. I mean, it's all up and down from Ethiopia to South Africa. So, so um, um, there's been many attempts to get at the genetics. And I didn't talk about that, but I talked about environmental, theoretically modifiable things, smoke exposure and hot beverages. But there's got to be some genetics here, too. I mean, cancer is usually more complex than we think, right? And you have so many people younger than 40 with this disease. There must be some genetics. And... Prior attempts have failed, but there's now a AFREC is sponsoring a big GWAS study, genome-wide association study, with populations from all up and down East Africa, uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of DNA specimens from patients and controls. And um, it's going to be a little while till we have the result of that. Is it more rural versus urban then because of the smoke? That's interesting. So... Um, I don't think that we know the answer to that because they see a lot of this in, in Nairobi as well, but there's huge referral bias there also. It's a fascinating question. I don't have the answer. I wonder, too, if it could be altitude-related. 
set up labs. One of the things we tried to do was set up immunoperoxidase staining, and we found out that at Kajabi Hospital, the altitude is so high that water boils about 93 degrees Celsius. So they're used to drinking cooler tea there. I wonder <laughs> if the Interesting. altitude areas in Kenya may have a lower incidence of and we just don't have detailed incidence data. It's a fascinating question. Some of the areas I'm showing you on that map, though, are not at high altitude. And um, so my instinct is it's probably not a major factor, but we don't really have data. It's a good question. I mean, Dennis Burkett, a, a British surgeon who did incredible research, um, used starting with logbooks like, like this program did, um, Dennis Burkett figured out that Burkitt's lymphoma only happened at a certain altitude range, huh? And it was key to understanding actually the etiology of that of that lymphoma. So, yeah, it's a great question. I had another question also. Is there an institutional review board at Tenwick Hospital? Great question. Thank you for asking that. So, yes, Tenwick has an has created its own long ago now institutional review board to approve and, uh, and, or not approve, but to review proposals for research. And that committee is, does not just include white doctors. I mean, and it includes a number of Kenyans who are on the staff of the hospital and a number of Kenyans from the community uh, in that area of Kenya, right? So that this is not in any way white people foisting this on Kenyans. Any project that involves any intervention if it's an endoscopy, if it's a biopsy, even if it's collecting urine, we also gets improved by the University of Nairobi, which is the national IRB. So, and that's a hospital policy. The hospital has said, you're doing anything that it might have any risk, we're, we want approval from the national IRB, which I think is a really wise decision. Okay, we're going to stop. Thank you so much for staying and for your, your interest.